Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. The brain remains one of medicine's greatest mysteries. With artificial intelligence as an invaluable assistant, physicians, surgeons, researchers are gaining an unprecedented window into how this enormously complex organ works. In this episode of Neuropathways, we're exploring the intersection of neuroscience and artificial intelligence and harnessing the power of AI to safely and ethically advance the field. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. John Morin join me for today's conversation. Dr. Morin is a neurologist in the Neuromuscular Center within Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute and serves on the board of directors of the American Association of Neuromuscular and Electrodiagnostic Medicine, where he leads their AI task force. John, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you for having me, Dr. Stevens. It's my pleasure, and and I know you, but for those in the audience that don't know you, tell us a little bit about your background, how you made your way to the Cleveland Clinic, and what you do here. Sure. Well, I'm originally from the tropical island of Trinidad and Tobago. That's the southernmost island in the Caribbean belt. So I'm a little bit outside of my natural habitat, so to speak. But that gave me a very interesting experience growing up. That being said, you know, I, I grew up in a village and, um, you know, my path to medicine was somewhat atypical. You know, I remember thinking I would never really want to deal with um, a lot of the complexities that come with medicine, but also had some uh, serious doubts about medicine because of um, things like, you know, body fluids and things that would be not something I, I thought was appealing. Now, I got sick as a as a child and during my teenage years, I depended on doctors to uh, really make a difference in my life. I remember one time looking at them and saying, wow, you must go home feeling very satisfied with your day's work. And at that point, something kind of clicked. I was like, you know, it's really probably not a good excuse for me telling myself those are the reasons why I shouldn't get into medicine. I had a somewhat humble background. I knew if there was a little bit of a meritocracy, if I work hard enough, I could get into med school. Um, at that time, my love was um, mostly electronics. I would kind of scavenge um, things that people would, would throw away in terms of the electronic equipment and computers and uh, try to rebuild them. And uh, I thought I was heading in the direction of engineering, maybe electrical engineering, if I, I did make it to college, um, first in my family to do so. But then I said, if I do take this path of medicine, I mightn't be able to abandon my love for computers, uh, wires, and circuits. So needless to say, in med school, I gravitated towards neurology. And uh, I guess we're going to talk about how the love for computers uh, didn't go away either. Well, excellent. I know so much more about you than I actually knew before. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Well, it makes sense why you're interested in AI now. And of course, my children, I think, would say that I am a Luddite. But I don't think I don't think that that's really true. You know, for those that don't know what a Luddite is, you know, the Luddites are the uh, the group of people in England that at the turn of the century broke up all the the cotton mills and those types of things because they thought technology was going to do something poor. But I was I was thinking about you know how much AI do I really use? And I know that you're going to define this for us, but you know I was thinking I look at my phone and I turn it on and it uses my face. 
to yes. engage and the infrared mm-hmm. uh, dots know what I look like. And when I'm mm. typing an email to somebody, it's correcting my spelling. I don't even have to do it. And, you know, when I'm on a trip, somebody's telling me where to go or one of these uh, electronic things. So I, I guess we're all using a lot more AI than we think that we're using. That's that's absolutely right. Um, we see it all around us, and there are just uh, growing areas of application that really doesn't require us to sign up, per se. So we're going to go forward today without fear. We're not going to have any fear that this is going to replace anybody. We're going to go forward with uh, a better understanding of how it's going to help everybody. So in order to get everybody on the same page, we want you to define some AI buzzwords for us. But just tell us, number one, what AI is. Uh, Tell us things such as uh, machine learning, deep learning, LLM, uh, which uh, I use as well. Not very much, but a little bit. But why don't you define these terms for us so everybody's on the same page? Sure. No, these are definitely terms gaining traction in our daily vocabulary these days. So uh, AI could be defined um, simply as like a computer system that performs tasks commonly associated with intelligent beings. Another way of looking at it is uh, their computer systems endowed with intellectual processes, very characteristic of, of humans, such as the ability to reason, to discover meaning, to generalize or learn from past experiences. You know, a lot of this has been work that come out of pioneers in the 1940s, 1950s. So this is not a new concept, but a lot of the acceleration in the AI space happened over the last uh, half a decade or so because of the increasing ability of computing power and, and namely the development of uh, GPUs, graphics processing units, which really allow for parallel computing and really put a lot of power into the hands of, of these computer scientists and really dealt with the rate-limiting step in AI development. You will hear the word machine learning a lot. And I think if we look at that word, it has the word learning in it. And believe it or not, that's what these computers are doing fairly autonomously. Before, a lot of automation with computing was based on uh, rules. So we call them like rules-based algorithms. If this, then that. So with machine learning... Um, you have these machines improving at tasks with repetition or with experience, devoid of explicit programming, which is pretty neat. So machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence. And then a subset of machine learning is deep learning. So it's deeper. As, uh, so the word is kind of self-explanatory. But what deep also means is what's really low down in a set of layers. So basically, deep learning is machine learning using an artificial neural network. And we'll talk more about that. And that's what gets me excited as a neurologist because a nerve cell has a cell body and axons that goes away from the cell body and you have multiple dendrites feeding into it. So when Rosenblatt and colleagues developed the concept of a perceptron, this kind of artificial neuron uh, in in the computer space in the 1940s, 1950s, they were using the same concept of this piece of our natural biology nerves. We have input that's being fed into a cell body that's summated. So dendrites feeding into cell body with a summation, the cell body executes a function. And when a certain threshold is exceeded, then there's an output down the axon. And if you arrange multiple artificial neurons uh, in a layer, and then you have multiple layers on top of each other, arborizing in a very similar way that our cerebral cortex does it, 
then you have an amazingly powerful computing potential. So when you have multiple artificial neural networks layered like that, you have a very powerful AI machinery, and uh, it can do a lot of uh, complex tasks. So that's what deep learning is. And a lot of the deep learning algorithms are able to do a lot of amazing human-like complex tasks. And then the large language model? So now that we understand what deep learning is, LLMs or large uh, language models are DL or deep learning algorithms that could perform a variety of natural language processing tasks, so NLP tasks, as they're called. So they could recognize, they could summarize, they can translate, predict, and generate content using very large data sets. And we're in the era of big data, and that's why these things are uh, so much more possible. So the core of the algorithm uh, predicts the next word in sentences, and that's an oversimplification of the process. But uh, th this is basically what drives uh, popular applications like uh, ChatGPT. You know, I didn't even realize I was involved in LLM till I looked at my phone today and I started typing and it was predicting the next word. I mean, that's the same thing, right? Right. In, 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 some, uh, in some ways, yes, but it's, it's, it's definitely more complex than that. LLMs can be used to actually build protein models, for example. <laughs> um, so uh, it's a simplistic way of explaining uh, LLMs, but we could build on that as we do the discussion. Mm -hmm. AI seems built for neurologists. I know the podcast is for a large group of people, but based on what you sort of described on the neuron and how all of this was developed, it seems like an excellent fit for neurologists. Um, have neurologists adapted this? Should we be adapting it? Should we really just love this stuff? Uh, should we be touting it and at the front of the line, or where should we be? Well, as you know, Dr. Stevens, I, I think we should be owning this a lot more than we do because the engineers, the, the folks who are um, building these models are looking at basically the, the object of our regard and passion, the nervous system, and using it to add power to these computer systems. So e even if we look at how we've evolved in our understanding of learning and memory, at one point, we thought, you know, we were laying down these uh, physical substrate or chemical substrate called engrams. And then we learned that, well, actually, it's not that simple. Um, there, you know, there are a lot of uh, learning and memory occurs due to um, a lot of dynamic synaptic activity. But there's still a lot of the uh, about the, the brain and, and, and cognition and learning that we still don't completely understand and what the computer scientists call a black box phenomenon. And that's exactly what's going on right now with this revolution in AI using deep learning. The artificial brain, so to speak, is it's producing uh, results that are very powerful beyond what the scientists can explain. So um, you'll hear the term explainability. A lot of these models, they, they perform so well, but there's poor explainability or we, we are um, slowly peeling the layers of, of mystery around them. Uh, as we speak. And uh, another thing you could look at, uh, there's some parallel here between some of our more advanced learning theories, and this might be a little bit combination of neurosciences and education theory. Uh, traditionally, there was a lot of emphasis on cognitivism in our, in our learning process. Um, but more recently, we, we realized that more meaningful learning happens with making meaning out of experiences. And that's exactly what these models do. They, they allow for a better understanding when 
data is re repeatedly put through the algorithm so the machines get better and better with repetition. And that's what we do as, as human beings. And there's another modern learning theory called connectivism. And that also uh, runs parallel with what's happening uh, in, in this space. So I find it very exciting to see these parallels. And it's really one of the uh, major reasons why I think we should own it um, a lot more than we do as neurologists and neuroscientists. And how is AI going to help us in clinical care? I know there's always the fear that it will replace us. I don't personally have that fear. It's really a, to augment what we're doing. But how do we use it to support clinical care? And how is it being used currently? What do you see in the future? Uh, I want to make a comment on the use of your word augment. And I think uh, that's that's very key and important. I think when I say AI, most of the times I am uh, re making reference to augmented intelligence rather than artificial. So the A for augmented rather than artificial. Um, and, and that really speaks to the partnership that's needed with uh, human intelligence to make AI truly powerful and less dangerous. But... To your question about AI for clinical care, there are multiple ways this is applied. Um, I think most of the audience, uh, when they think of AI, they think of chat GPT and similar large language models like, you know, Google's BARD or Claude AI or Microsoft Bing AI with Copilot. These are all, you know, free, available, web-based LLM applications that are hugely popular. Um, and, you know, AI has really shot into the public consciousness after the release of ChatGPT in the fall of 2022. But for uh, clinical care, there's actually what's equivalent to ChatGPT for uh, clinicians, and that's called MedPalm. And that's a product from Google. And MedPalm 2 is out, and uh, you, you probably would have, some folks may have heard about how it's performed like um, way above 80% in the US MLE and similar medical exams. And uh, there's a similar large language model type AI technologies used even in radiology. There's something called Annalise AI, and you could go and uh, put in your your CT brain and uh, have this software read it for you and does a decent job and you'll see how it performs. Um, it's really exciting. And again, it's to augment, not to replace uh, radiologists. Isaac Kahani at Harvard talks about how he uh, uses even chat GPT um, responsibly to, to crack some hard diagnostic cases. You know, I, I would certainly encourage uh, folks to read his book, uh, The AI Revolution. Um, there's a lot of work in medical scribing, so DeepScribe and uh, Dragon, DAX, and Augmetics. They, they, they use ambient AI technology so we can probably get our notes done accurately, quickly, and liberate ourselves from the keyboard and the computer screen so we could spend some more meaningful time uh, with our patients. Um, and then you could use AI for a number of administrative uh, purposes in the medical office uh, using something called consensus, which we could talk more about. You could use it to um, optimize your patient portal messages to make sure that you're speaking to the patient at the grade six or seven reading level as the NIH recommends for a lot of the medical explanations and things. And, you know, even here uh, for clinical care, we're doing a lot with um, an AI in medicine grant here in neuromuscular to improve uh, things like EMG. As you would imagine, uh, patients have been asking for a long time, how can we um, use technology to lessen the pain and the discomfort that comes with uh, needle electrode examination? You know, um, and, you know, I think this is going to be a big part of how we really uh, revolutionize that. 
So, John, uh, you know, I started in an era where it was just pen to paper uh, writing the notes, so things have definitely progressed. But, you know, it just sort of seemed like one day uh, chat GTP was out there and it was free. What was the thinking? Why did they just release it free? Is there something behind it? Do you understand the story, why it was released, what the intent was? Yeah, I think it was a very strategic move. I mean, we could talk about how, you know, OpenAI started up as a nonprofit and now they're a for-profit. Um, I mean, there could be a business uh, side to the explanation. But I think it was very strategic because I think the developers knew that there was a public fear about AI being a dangerous thing. Um, but they wanted to change the um, the public consciousness about AI as something that's actually truly powerful, almost scary powerful, but very useful. I think there has been a lot of um, transformation in, in the perspective around AI after ChatGPT was released. There continues to be a lot of um, doubts at time about whether it's being used responsibly and there, there are guardrails that need to be put in place. For example, when ChatGPT was released, within two months of its release, um, it had over 100 million active users so that's pretty amazing. And it got to um, almost 2 billion. So that's with, with a B monthly website hits for that uh, ChatGPT website um, by the summer of 2023. So it certainly allowed the public to become more familiar with AI technologies and how powerful they are. Yeah. So using AI in medical education and training are you using it currently with your fellows and residents, uh, or how is it being used nationally? There's a lot of applications for AI in medical education training, and yes, I, I, I am. I could break this up into how AI can be leveraged to be helpful for the program and how it could be helpful uh, to the trainee. From the program side, there have been applications where uh, you could use a recruitment chatbot on your program website to attract to attract really good uh, candidates, and that's been proven to be true. Um, you can actually use it to predict uh, your the ranked and matriculated applicants, which is something if, if you're in program management, is almost like a nirvana experience when you, when you could see that happen. It could be used to detect implicit biases in application materials, and that's very important for obvious reasons. Um, it could categorize narrative feedback from faculty into particular milestones. So that automates an, an otherwise very tedious process. Um, from the trainee standpoint, they've used AI uh, integration to uh, automate and improve case logging, to optimize communication simulations and other simulations, to improve proficiency, to help prepare for board and in-service exams as a learning coach, because a lot of these LLM models are performing much better than a PGY-5 uh, level uh, trainee. Um, it's exciting. So there's that. And, you know, and one of the examples I had shown in a recent talk was how you could use it for qualitative research and education. So, you know, a lot of times you, you, you interview um, trainees or learners and you have these long transcripts and how do you digest that to get themes? Well, LLMs are really awesome at doing that in a, in a few seconds. It allows for qualitative research to move forward in a way it hasn't uh, done in education for a while. So you mentioned a little bit about guardrails. Obviously, what the good is the potential for misuse. Talk about that a little bit. Limitations, how can we control it? How can we manage it? I mean, you hear a lot of concerns about academic uh, misuse. Yes, with uh, 
great power comes great responsibility. And that's true for um, for anything that's truly um, innovative like like this. I think the first thing I should make very clear, you know, even though we have easy access to powerful uh, AI tools like ChatGPT, we should never enter sensitive information, you know, patient identifiers, protected health information into a chat on those kind of publicly available sources um, because we don't have security of information for that. And that's a HIPAA violation. Um, but I think the most popular limitation has been, you know, hallucinations. And as neuro neurologists and neuroscientists, I think we should use the word confabulations with these models um, because the output from these um, tools can come come out with a very confident tone. And if you're not careful, you would buy it wholesale and, and apply it and you'll be just compounding an error. So, um, you know, the, the, this has been uh, much better with more recent iterations of these uh, of these tools, but uh, it's ultimately the responsibility of the user to to double check. Uh, a lot of the, the newer versions, for example, in uh, Google Bard, uh, it will flag uh, sentences that it's it's outputting with a, with a color code and says you know this you might want to check or you could click on it and we'll do a Google search to verify it. So it's it's kind of auto um, correcting itself in, in in a lot of ways. And you could always ask the model uh, where did you get that from or quote your source, and it's able to do that um, very well in most applications. But you know, I, I think it's kind of like using dictation software. If, for those who use, uh, like I use Dragon Dictation a lot, uh, it's great. It automates things. But when I dictate into a patient's chart, I'm ultimately responsible to check that to make sure that it captured what I said. So it's the same kind of thing. You 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 have to uh, proofread before you deploy it as final. You gotta um, confirm. So I say you must uh, trust but verify. Well, I think that's the concern, right? Is where does that ultimately end you know who is the verifier who is the person responsible to make sure that that these things are done correctly i think that's the difficulty right i mean you as a person yes. can do it for yourself but as an institution who checks on the institution use of these yeah and that's part of the legal ethics right so if there is you know a patient harm that occurs of this or breach of, of patient privacy um where's the locus of responsibility for that so um Again, it's it's this is kind of still gray and a, a bit opaque. Um, you know, there are other aspects like the humanistic ethics. You know, if you if you're using this to generate uh, responses to um, patients, like through patient portals, you know, can you erode compassion, authenticity? Um, and the, the current recommendation, best practice is to actually disclose use of uh, AI-generated content in any of the healthcare applications. You know, there's bias training into these models as well, especially some of the early models. So we have to be aware of the uh, potential to have underrepresented groups be at a disadvantage when when these um, technologies are applied to them. I don't know if you saw there was an article with the New York Times suing OpenAI and, and Microsoft uh, for copyright infringement. So there's that whole copyright thing. Um, th this is scraping a lot of data from the Internet and uh it's hard to ascertain whether or not you're infringing copyright, but with the very nature of how um, this content is generated. You have to be mindful too of the date limitations, right? So for example, Chat GPT, uh, it only goes up to January of 2022. So if you're looking for more recent data, the onus is on you to make sure that you're producing information or making decisions on the most up-to-date information. There may be an AI version of me doing podcasts. 
uh, I think that's out there already. Uh, <laughs> so, but you know, no, no need to worry about job security. Well, that's the question. Am I real or am I AI? It'll keep us on our toes. Yeah. Keep you on your toes. I don't want to tell you, but we wrote the intro uh, for today on AI. Right. And that's the, that's the reality. But there was a, you know, a nice little disclaimer at the bottom there and that's how it should be done. And that's the idea. I think we can't pretend that it doesn't exist and we can't pretend it's not helping us. Uh, transparency is very important. You know, somebody said, you know, if you were in an airport and you're going to tell the folks boarding a plane, hey, we did, we're deciding not to use autopilot on today's flight. A lot of people will will come off the plane. Um, I think we we realize that, yes, we, we want a human pilot. Uh, definitely people want that. But we know we're better off with a combination. So it's it's like synergy. You know, the the total is more than just the sum of its parts. That's how I see uh, AI plus HI. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how the brain works as well. Well, I like that analogy. So this has gone so rapid in terms of the development of AI, not our podcast, but where are we in five years? It's hard to imagine, right? That's true because of the exponential nature of this. Uh, you know, I think we're going to see models that have very little hallucinations. For example, there's this new aspect of the technology called Retrieval Augmented Generation, RAG, and uh, and that allows these models to use the most updated information in their output, and it can actually use specific databases to produce the response to inform your decisions. So, you know, if you're running a business, for example, it could use specific information, even proprietary information for your particular company, uh, so that it's contextualized before it's applied. And, and that's immensely valuable. You know, I think this is going to be more embedded technology. For example, it will be in our uh, electronic medical record prompting us to make the right decisions. It will be in the wearable technologies that we have because we're constantly supplying data just by wearing a smartwatch, for example, or having a cell phone on our body. You know, it's, it's something that will be truly exponential in its improvement. So, John, final takeaways you want to leave with the audience? I think it's important that if you haven't kind of embraced the the AI revolution, that that you should. And it might start with with small experiments. You know, go on go on there and use some of those free AI tools, like those large language models, so you could understand the power, but also understand the responsibility that needs to accompany it. You should be a change agent and find more use cases for your specific field and subspecialty, like I'm doing for neuromuscular and EMG, for example. I, I see AI as a general purpose tool. I think uh, Andrew Ng says it best. It's kind of like electricity. If you ask somebody, what is electricity good for? <laughs> like, where do you start? You know, um, And that's uh, what we should think about AI in terms of its applicability. Just find more and more uh, very useful ways to use it. And then you should follow best practice guidelines. Um, as you know, I'm uh, part of that uh, subcommittee with the AANEM, um, putting out position statements on the responsible use of AI. I think there are a lot out there, even by the uh, World Health Organization. There are some uh, stipulations about how it should be applied to healthcare. So we just need to be aware of the, of the guardrails. We're a little bit behind because the technology is moving so fast, but the regulatory aspect is catching up. Um, and we need to be aware of it so that we uh, are safe, especially uh, as it pertains to the interests of patients. Well, John, I'm excited to hear that I'm not a Luddite. And I appreciate uh, this fascinating conversation. It's been educational to me. Uh, it's something that I think that, as you uh, mentioned, that we need to embrace because it's here. 
and we need to understand it and really looking forward to how the field continues to evolve. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash Nero or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.